one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 905 for the week of Monday, June 26th, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hi, Sawyer. And if I hear the term double header associated with a rocket launch one more time, I am just going to scream. Alrighty then. <laughs> Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. It's a pleasure to be here. Before I jump into my uh, crazy July of working three jobs at the university, so I'm enjoying my my last little hurrah before taking a month off. Before your triple header. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Sawyer. Well done. Thank you. Ba-dum-bum. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. And here in rural North Florida. I'm actually thinking about a baseball game sometime this summer to go catch one. So all of this discussion hasn't gone totally, uh, totally to waste. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Good. I'm glad it hasn't gone to waste, especially since we're about to talk about a launch double header. Oh, wait, I wasn't supposed to say that. <laughs> well, then, regardless, SpaceX completed a record for the company with Two launches and two landings in two days. The first launch took place on June 23rd, 2017. Liftoff occurred from Launch Complex 39A at 3.10 p.m. Eastern Time, 1910 UTC, one hour after it was scheduled for its initial liftoff. This was a previously flown booster, the second time that SpaceX has reflown a booster. This one carried the Bulgaria Sat, Bulgaria's first orbital class satellite, and completed its arrival into geostationary transfer orbit, along with landing the first stage on the barge, of course I still love you, out in the Atlantic Ocean. That was followed two days later on June 25th, with a launch at 4.25 p.m. Eastern Time, 2025 GMT, out of Vandenberg Air Force Base's Slick 4 East. That, Falcon 9, lifted off with the Iridium Next satellites, carrying the next 10 in the Iridium Next network, numbers 11 through 20. That successfully delivered those into low Earth orbit, once again landing that first stage on the barge, just read the instructions, in the Pacific Ocean. Those were their 8th and ninth launches of the year, setting a record for SpaceX for the most number of launches they have had so far in one year. And yes, that is their record for one year, and it is still only June, with another launch currently scheduled for early July. 
this is a, a great thing for the private space industry that um, SpaceX is able to ramp up its launches. I watched the, the first launch and landing. I didn't get to catch the second, but um, that uh, landing was pretty was a pretty difficult landing and they managed to hit it was was great. Both of them were especially difficult. The first one, because Bulgaria sat was such a heavy payload and where it was going, they had to use a three engine burn to slow it down. And if you look at the landing, it went just slightly off center. And according to Elon Musk on Twitter, just barely made it underneath the design limits for how hard it can hit. But nonetheless, it landed and it standed. And the other difficult one out in Vandenberg was the seas. There was very choppy seas and they weren't sure if it was going to be able to land on it, it was right under the limits. And sure enough, that one hit it almost right on the X. Yeah. And uh, just to, to add something to about the payloads, uh, for the first launch, uh, that was, I believe, core number 29, which was being reused. The uh, Bulgar Bulgaria sat was uh, constructed uh, on, under contract to uh, uh, Space Systems Loral, who uh, built the satellite for them. Uh, by all indications, it sounds like they've got a healthy bird, and uh, so uh, Bulgaria is now going to have their own television satellite, I believe. And in an article, I believe, from uh, Spaceflight Now, uh, the head of uh, Bulgaria sat, said they would not be able to do this and not be able to go ahead and get this, this, uh, this satellite up there had it not been for SpaceX and a lot of the uh, the inexpensive uh, things that they are doing to make uh, space affordable to entities that normally would not have that luxury. So just a little bit of a uh, kudos to, to SpaceX for getting this technology available and having the opportunities available that, uh, that they are making for, uh, for, not, for some new players on the block to get in on space and communications. The other satellite, which was actually a set of 10 satellites for, for the Iridium Next constellation, that is going to be part of, I believe, an 81 satellite network. Those satellites were built with uh, Thales Helena being the, uh, the prime contractor, but uh, Orbital ATK actually constructing the satellites for Thales, uh, all 10 of them. They were responsible for the integration and uh, and testing and and construction of all ten of those birds, and uh, just a, a something that I've I noticed in in the press kit, SpaceX does take a mention of uh, Thales and uh, and that as far as being as part of the the launch team, but for some reason or other they kind of omitted orbital ATK. Um, in in turn. In the uh, Iridium Next literature, uh, Orbital does make some reference to, to SpaceX in saying that Falcon 9 is going to be one of the, the rockets that will, will launch the Iridium satellite, satellite network. But, uh, they, you know, they, they don't mention SpaceX directly. So I guess little friendly, unfriendly competition going on between the two companies who are, are usually vying for uh, ISS cargo, cargo rides, too. So... Just, just, a, just a little bit of an observation there. Very interesting observation indeed. Now, when you were mentioning with Bulgaria Sat how they wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for the cost reduction, that's kind of what we talked about in last episode in 904 after the uh, CRS-11 launch. You know, how they're working on starting to reuse things, but it's going to take a while before the cost starts to come down. Now that they've landed, I believe it's 11 boosters so far, and their missions, you know, it, 
the cost is starting to come down now that we've gone up in the number of landings. So it's nice to see that finally happening where, you know, other players can finally enter the game like Bulgaria, country not many people think about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but um, on the flip side of that coin, I'm going to mention, too, that uh, there was a, a piece in Space News this week about Space Systems Laurel uh, issuing layoffs. Space Systems Laurel is a ComSat manufacturer, and they were just saying that there just isn't the market um, right now for uh, for communications or any other you know satellite construction out there in in the private sector. This was a comment that I think we we had uh, uh, alluded to. I think in one of our previous programs um, to bring back um, uh, Orbital ATK for a moment. Uh, David Thompson, their their CEO, basically said in essentially the same thing in one of their uh, second quarter uh, conference calls and said that what he's observing is that the market right now is kind of soft on the private end and really, really charging on the uh, military and you know public end like NASA and so on. So he expects the... Uh, that market the, the, to remain pretty okay as far as satellite manufacturing is concerned, but the other side of the coin, you know, being telecommunication satellites and um, Earth observation satellites and things like that, he still sees that being kind of warm, and he only expects maybe to build like twelve birds this year. And that's not a whole lot when you consider that. So I, I'm kind of wondering, I know SpaceX's business model is to launch constantly and to keep things moving. Heck, they want to see if they can get that turnaround time to a day and, and get that launch pad turned around like that. Uh, I don't know, and I'm going to throw this question out to to you and to the panel here i'll even throw it out to the audience i don't know if the market's going to be able to bear that right now considering you know i mean i know i know spacex has got a backlog of uh of missions they really need to fly and they really want to get that 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 turn and they're going to be really really busy to get that turnaround going but as that backlog becomes less and less is the market going to be there for a lot of this quick turnaround kind of stuff. I don't know. I think the answer now especially is yes. If they can get that cost down even more like they're starting to do, that means that more people can actually start developing satellites and not have to worry about the launch costs being extreme as they are right now where, you know, no matter what provider you're looking at 40, 50 million dollars to bring that down. That I think that adds a lot more people. Yeah, I think that while the demand at the high end of the range is you know, the concern that you're expressing, Gene, I think what Sawyer says is, is, is correct, that once launches become more affordable, that that's going to open up the industry, the satellite industry, to a whole range of players who could never make that happen before. So I guess the consensus of the team here is that as, as these costs come down, you may see some very interesting names pop up and say, yeah, we want a ComSat. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that launch capability, if it gets down, especially if you're looking at shared launches where maybe several people can come together and share a launch, that might even be within the realm of like grant money that educational institutions in the United States get for, you know, 
doing research. So this might become in, in the realm of, you know, someone who gets a $10 million grant might be able to spend $5 million with, you know, four or five other people to launch something. So as, as the price goes down, I think you're going to see, you know, more and more people who are seeing space not only as, as a commercial venture who may want to get into even SmallSat or, or other sort of satellites, but also as, as the launch price goes down, I think you're going to see more research in space as well. Fingers crossed on that one. That because we we're, we're we're getting more research. Uh, that also means there are more more you know universities involved and more science being done. So um, I'm 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 my fingers are crossed, and I hope you're right, Cap. Seriously. Me too. As do I. I should also point out that in terms of turnaround time, uh, it was the record for the shortest turnaround between two SpaceX flights from different launch sites of two days. Which once Slick Forty gets back up. Who knows, that could get down to a day or less. Uh, and the last time that two orbital-class U.S. rockets of similar type lifted off two days apart, according to Spaceflight Now, was March 1995, when a Lockheed Martin Atlas IIAs and a similar Atlas E launcher flew separate missions from Cape Canaveral and Vandenberg Air Force Base. Russia still has the record for shortest turnaround of one day between different launch pads. In March 2015, they had a Soyuz takeoff with a crew to the space station, and then two hours later was a launch from French Guiana. Yeah, but that, sir, that one was probably a, a launch from ESA, <laughs> and, and and not uh, Roscosmos, I think that because they 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 kind of take the Soyuz and ESAfy it, if you, if you know what I mean. They make their own changes and so on. So I'm not too sure we're dealing with the same crew there. True. One thing I do want to point out that we talked about, you know, the three engine landing burn on the first one. If you watch the first and the second one and compare them, camera's a lot cleaner on the second one for landing. Uh, that has to do with the new grid fin design. They are now made out of titanium. They've been redesigned. They are one piece instead of multiple pieces. There is no ablative coating on them either. They can now withstand the heat of reentry as is, which prevents less of that burnt residue from getting on the cameras if you ever watch the webcasts of the first stage landing again. Plus, it makes it more efficient and gives them, supposedly, according to Elon Musk, a indefinite number of uses. And not only that, Sawyer, too, I don't know if, it, if you were watching, but uh, it, the, they came out a little bit more slowly, if if I recall, and, and it kind of made it a little bit, m threw a little bit more drama, a little bit more, you know, artistic flair into the into the, the camera view, too, so uh, it, it made for interesting watching, at least. Yeah, the other ones were like a quick little, and out they were. These were a lot slower, but I, I liked it, and again, it apparently worked extremely well, according to Elon Musk on Twitter, so... <laughs> I'm cool with it. And and again, as 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 we've pointed out here a couple times, they'll continue to fine tune these these guys. They'll continue to fine tune the Falcon Nine and and really turn it into a workhorse. And uh, it I, I'm waiting to see. By the way, because of the hard landing, I I'm waiting to see because it really hit hard. And uh, I'm really really curious to see what the turnaround time on that one's going to be. That will certainly be interesting. But uh, you know it. It looked like it took a beating, but it, it landed, so they can always keep refurbishing. Yep, take, like the old Timex, takes a look and keeps on ticking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, they're not the only ones that are experiencing success. Another group that's experiencing success is ISRO, which is out in India. They had their 40th successful flight of the PSLV, the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, this past Thursday. That launched... 
at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time of Thursday, June 23rd, which was 3.59 Friday GMT. The rocket carried a mapping satellite for India along with 30 other small sat payloads into space, including from all different countries. It launched successfully and all of the payloads made it into orbit. Yeah, the Sawyer, so the Indian Space Research Organization, or ISO, ISRO, has been really, really active of late. They've, I mean, everybody has been, you know, keeping an eye on them since. Uh, uh, the Mars Orbiter mission a few years back. There were 31 satellites all in all, uh, 29 of them belonging to other countries, according, and this according to the, the Indian newspaper, The Hindu. Uh, according to this article here, they're saying the other 29 nanosatellites belong to 14 other nations, Australia, Belgium, Chile, the Czech Republic, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovakia, the UK, and of course the United States. So there's there's your your laundry list of uh, of missions. But what, what's really interesting, though, Sawyer, is I'm noticing this, and it's not just with the uh, the ISRO vehicles. It's it's essentially with a lot of the. Um, you know, the advanced expendable launch vehicles and, of course, SpaceX's rockets as well. I say that because they are not really expendable. There's a lot of piggybacking going on in the CubeSat world on these guys. I mean, uh, you know, Antares has carried its share of CubeSats to uh, to orbit. And, of course, uh, Falcon 9 has carried its its shares of CubeSats up as well and, and, you know, had those as... Tertiary and tertiary payloads. I mean, even even I think Ariane Five has carried up a few CubeSats as well. There's a trend going on that I guess a lot of these CubeSat manufacturers they're going with the EELVs or these larger vehicles rather than going with some of the rockets that are out there that are actually designed to carry small sats. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned a few of them on this program. You know, the, the folks over at Vector, for instance, uh, Rocket Lab is another. We just lost one, um, one of the runners in that race, uh, Firefly. I'll, I'll throw this out again. Is, is Do you think that's a growing trend, or do you think they're going to come back and look at these other rockets, these other companies like Vector, like Rocket Lab, and fly on those? I mean, I think the problem with those right now is that Vector has only flown to 4,000 feet the Electron rocket has made it into space, but not into orbit yet. So the problem is that anything that was in the market, like you mentioned, is dead. And all the ones that are currently in the market still have yet to have proven flights and are still being designed and are probably still a year away from them being a viable option, at least. So I think that's the problem with that right now, is there is no other option than the EELVs for something cheap, and also that will get you there. I think once those come into play and once they're up and operational, once again, like with the SpaceX thing, once it brings the cost down and they're happening more often, I think then it'll we'll see a change in the trend. I mean, even SLS is flying some CubeSats on its first mission. So. Well, it still has to fly, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I'm not going to go there. So India, like you were saying, has put a lot. Apparently right now they have put 41 CubeSats total into space on their PSLV rockets. So it's pretty good, including the 30 additional ones on this one. Yeah, I'm wondering, too, if later on they're going to give SpaceX a run for their money, uh, you know, as far as cost. and. Well, my thought is Falcon will take the 
equatorial, and then India will take the polar. Hmm. If so, then we've got two major powerhouses each taking a different launch angle. Yeah, you know it, that that <laughs> that could be the uh, that could be the uh, the big uh, big solution to that uh, that problem there, sure. I like but, it. Uh, I like the way we're thinking here. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is this is just sort of the plus of having more players involved in the launch market. And then you know, don't forget we you know you still have uh, Jeff Bezos over there waiting in the wings with uh, with Blue Origins, uh, New Shepard, and New Glenn. You still have Orbital ATK coming up with their uh, new launch vehicle that uh, they're working with the Air Force now to produce. There are heck of a lot of players on this field, and it's going to be very very interesting to see how they all kind of you know duke it out and don't forget the ula is still out there they have i dare say the most reliable booster on the planet right now the atlas 5 so it, it it's gonna see it's gonna be interesting to see all of these players just kind of you know just really really duke it out and see who wins absolutely and i'm grabbing my popcorn to see it happen oh yeah so while we're talking about uh, the smaller launch market, before we head back into the bigger launch market, we have a bunch of sounding rockets that are either set to go, have gone, or have been waiting to go for quite some time, and weather is being <laughs> stupid. Gene, can you run us through these uh, sounding rockets? Because we don't talk about them often, but there's quite a lot of them in the wings. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Sawyer. First off, the one that we're waiting on is one that I was actually down at uh, uh, WAPS flight facility for. I, I took off my uh, vacation hat for a little while and threw in my uh, my journalist hat and, and kind of walked around and, and took in the sights and sounds uh, over at uh, WAPS Island and, and in pre preparation for the launch. What they're doing is um, this, this one experiment they're trying to fly is uh, uh, an experiment that will go ahead and launch uh, about 10 canisters of particulate into the ionosphere. Now, these canisters are about no bigger than a, a can of uh, soft drink uh, that we would get here in the United States or any, any can of Coke. And uh, what it'll do is just release all these particulates and just watch and see how... Uh, how these particulates drift and what they'll do is they'll also change the sky into some pretty colors some reds some greens pretty much all of the east coast was going to get treated to a you know an artificial aurora in fact the, it was supposed to be seen as far north as, as up here in mid-atlantic region and may, perhaps new england if it hung in there that launch has been just snake bit since since that launch campaign started. There, there's some very stringent weather conditions that have to be in play. Either the weather has to be fine, you know, clear, and and the winds have to be at a certain speed at Wallops, or at the secondary observation site in Duck, North Carolina, and neither of those weather conditions have been meshing. Also, when I was there, a once again, our friend, the wayward boat, kind of wandered into the, the off-limits uh, radius there, and that kind of scrubbed the launch for that. I believe that uh, before I came down to Wallops, there was another one that did that. Um, there was nothing from a technical standpoint. Everything w was just going fine. It's always been weather, or it's always been, you know, some idiot wandering into the keep-out zone. 
so that's been on hold. They tried it again this past weekend, and they just decided to scrub it again due to weather. And uh, now that's on hold indefinitely. They have not gone ahead and put a, uh, a new launch date to that one yet. So keep watching the Wallops website and uh, see what happens with that. Also, uh, however, last week there was a uh, Terrier-improved Orion that had launched. Uh, this contained about 112 uh, student experiments, and that launched successfully at uh, 5.30 in the morning. I believe it was uh, last Thursday, as it's uh, Monday, June 26th, as we record this. That one went along very, very well. Uh, there's another rocket launch coming up, but this is going to be out of White Sands, uh, and it, is, it contains a, a spectrograph that will go ahead and study the chemical composition between the stars or the particle, particles between the stars. And that will be launched on uh, June 27th out of uh, White Sands, New Mexico. This will be a, a Black Brant 9 uh, suborbital sounding rocket. So th these are some of the things that Wallops Island's been doing um, of late. And besides launching, launching Antares, uh, there was an announcement to a couple of weeks back about Antares and the next next Antares launch there. Uh, they are looking at uh, no earlier than mid-September for OA-8. So uh, uh, we'll just see what happens with uh, with that particular launch date. That could be go left or right, depending on what uh, what NASA's needs are. But I believe, uh, if I recall exactly, and we may have made mention about it on this program too, with um, when uh, Frank DeMauro did his presentation at the Northeast Astronomy Forum. He indicated that I believe the next launch would be sometime in September, but that was contingent on NASA's needs. Uh, I believe also um, it was stated during that uh, little uh, Antares media event that happened, Frank Culbertson from uh, Orbital uh, mentioned too, that um, all of the remaining CRS-1 missions will be flown out of wallops on Antares. So that probably makes the, the local uh, folks really, really happy about that. Because from what I recall, again, um, the gentleman who runs the uh, Mid-Atlantic uh, Regional Spaceport, his name just ran and hid, I apologize, uh, indicated that each one of these launches is sort of the equivalent of, of, a, of a pony swim in tourism. Now, if you're familiar with the, the Wallops area and familiar with Chincoteague, the Pony Swim is a big deal. It's a big week-long carnival, and you get a really big tourist draw there. Apparently, it's, they get the same uh, tourist draw when, when they launch Antares. So good news for uh, uh, that area and good news for, uh, for Wallops overall. But uh, gosh darn it, that ant pole experiment that I was talking about, that has been a thorn in their side <laughs> since, um, since they started launching this launch campaign in, in the beginning of June. And uh, there's a rather amusing article about it in uh, Delmarva now that takes some, some interesting little uh, liberties with the reasons uh, that the, uh, um, the launch had been scrubbed every now and again. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a scream. If, uh, we'll, we'll try to see if we can get it into the show notes, but it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I know I was really annoyed at the, the launch that didn't give me pretty clouds because I was in North Carolina back home visiting my family. And I'm like, yes, please. No, 
Yes, please. No. I was like, this is rude. Cat, <laughs> <laughs> I was right there with you. I mean, I mean, I was surrounded by individuals. Some of them had driven down that night, that day from Philadelphia uh, just to see this thing go. Um, and there was a there were a lot of people that I talked with there was one gentleman uh, by the name of Dave he didn't give me his last name and uh, he he was you know he's like hey you know what are you gonna do yeah I mean scrubs are never fun like sometimes I'm like a scrub has benefited me you know I got to see smap launch because like it scrubs it was supposed to launch on my birthday and then it scrubs and I happened to fly to, into California and suggest to my friends who I was saying with like, hey, you know, there's a rocket launch tonight. <laughs> and so we drove up the couple hours to, to Vandenberg so we could see it. And I mean, I definitely, I have to admit, I'm keeping my my fingers crossed for the, um, is it the JPSS-1, the polar satellite? Yeah. Because it's supposed to launch, like it was supposed to launch over my spring break. So I was like, yes, I'm going to go see this. Because it's like a Delta two, which there's not that many left. I think, you know three or four at most and it's got nine srbs so i'm like all over i want to see this thing launch yep guess who's probably going to be on a plane to australia on its current launch date so uh, i'm like why are you doing this to me launch people <laughs> <sighs> well if it makes if it makes you feel any better cat if you've ever and and, and and sawyer i don't know if you you've suffered through this and but i know mark you and i have uh at least in florida the uh, virginia air force was was out there in 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 full in full strength and if you weren't wearing some sort of uh, insect repellent, you were in deep trouble. Oh, certainly have had. <laughs> I that will experience. have to say, yeah. my favorite place from which I have watched a launch for the sole reason, or at least on the on the East Coast, it's you don't really have that issue so bad at Vandenberg, but on the East Coast, watching a launch from KSC, the best place, even though it's a bit far away, is when I was there for EFT one and watched it from on top of the VAB because you're so high up. There's no mosquitoes and the humidity is super low. It was like, are we in Florida? Where have we come to this magical <laughs> land? It's like a whole new state up here. <laughs> so, yeah, we we happened to choose the one profession and the one uh, hobby that can be delayed by a cloud and a boat. Yes. Yes. And if that happens, there goes the entire day. Yep. Oh, rockets. I love them. They sing to our souls, and then they crush us with their scrubs. Right, right. <laughs> I couldn't have put that more elegantly, Sawyer. Thank you. One other um, launch that I do want to mention that's going on out in New Mexico is the Spaceport America Cup, which is a student and, well, hobbyist as well, uh, model rocket launch challenge. Some of those include... Those that might qualify as sounding rockets. One of those was a United Launch Alliance Future Heavy rocket, which carried a whole bunch of K through 12 payloads on it as well. So uh, that's been going on out in New Mexico. If you get a chance, there's a Twitch streamer by the name of Das Valdez who has been there filming all of it and posting it up online uh, on Twitter and everywhere. So uh, if you get a chance to take a look at those, it's really amazing what these uh, people can make. Indeed. Rock on, guys. In fact, the ULA one, I should mention, pulled to SpaceX. There's a picture of it landed back in the field, upright. 
The first stage stuck the landing. <gasps> <laughs> I oh boy, there there there's a photo of that Sawyer right there. There is a photo of it out there. Oh, I am so get I am so looking for for that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if we can get that in the show notes. If nothing else, oh, I'll send it to yeah. you personally. Please. At least uh, there's launched and landed pretty much spectacularly. There was another one a few weeks back that launched and then didn't go spectacularly. That was a Chinese Long March 3B rocket. That one launched Sunday, June 18th, 2017. The launch went perfectly according to plan out of the Zhishang Space Center bringing a ChinaSat 9A communication satellite into orbit. Well, the wrong orbit. The contractor had said that the ChinaSat 9A satellite separated away from the third stage after the anomaly and deployed its solar panels so that it could at least get into orbit. The spacecraft itself is healthy, and they're trying to see what they can do to control the satellite and keep it operational. But it appears that there was some issue involved with the third stage however they're not going into exact details of what it was with the third stage which is a dual nozzle yf-75 engine burning liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen this was the first long march 3 failure since august of 2009 as well they had 49 straight successes going up to this one that's a that's an impressive yeah impressive streak but hate to have a hate to end a good launch streak yeah, just shy of the 50. It should be interesting, too, to see how the investigation plays out and also, you know, the fixes that are employed. But we'll And we'll never know them because, well, China. <laughs> but um, it'll be interesting, too, to see what happens in the background if, if anybody is, um, well, disciplined in, in some manner for, for what had occurred. Um, by disciplined, I, I don't mean fired. Um, you know, I'm wondering if, if it's sort of the same way that, uh, uh, they, they kind of treat their, their, the, the folks in, in other, other countries, but, uh, it should be interesting to see, see, you know, what the cause was or what China says the cause was, if they ever do really release what it was and, and to see what improvements are made going forward, because China's also trying to do the same thing with long marches. You know, we're doing with with our stuff. They're trying to court customers as well. Very true. And I've yet to see video of the launch anywhere. I mean, there's some amateur video that was posted to Twitter. But otherwise, you know, they're being very mum about this. And I'm amazed that they actually said anything at all that there was an issue with the third stage, to be honest. I know it's like, for instance, with amateur astronomers, uh, if you say you're launching something with, you know, and, it, and it's a um, supposedly one of these um, clandestine satellites, and of course anybody launching something like that, they, you know, cut the um, launch broadcast at a certain point, and that's that. You don't hear from it after that point. But uh, some smart astronomers or, and smart amateur astronomers, they get together and all of a sudden, hey, guess what? We found it like three days later. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that there were some smart amateur astronomers out there trying to track this Chinese payload, whatever it was. And lo and behold, they probably would have found out about it. And that's the way we would have, would have found out about it. So they're, they're, you can't hide things anymore. 
Well, we'll have to see uh, what happens with that, and we'll see if there are any updates on that failure, and if there are, we will keep you updated as well. So, as we reach the mid-year, we're getting a lot of updates from NASA on some of their programs. Uh, one of them in particular, the Asteroid Recovery Mission, ARM. Well, it appears that the ARM has been amputated. <laughs> oh, I've been waiting 40 minutes to say that joke. Oh. I've been waiting. Sawyer, where's my bad call brick? <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, well, it's been cut, supposedly, so... Yes, it has. You want to take it away with fewer puns? Yeah, the the um, Small Bodies Advisory Group, or, uh, or SBAG, met about maybe, oh, two weeks ago, uh, concerning the status of a lot of the, uh, the planetary and small bodies investigations, asteroids, and things like that. Uh, Michelle Gates, who is the principal investigator for the asteroid redirect mission, gave her presentation and said, sadly, that they are going to go ahead and institute a orderly shutdown of the asteroid redirect mission. It was not really a big surprise to anybody. It did not receive a lot of support up on the hill. And it, for some reason or other, it didn't really capture the imagination of a lot of folks out in the, in the public. And the purpose of it was kind of kept shifting and, and so on and so forth. First, it was for planetary defense. Then it wasn't. Then it was again. Then it was for trying to use new technologies on how to get to Mars. And then, well, maybe it's not for that and so on. It, it, the, the, it was just kind of like a chameleon. It was just sort of shifting and and changing its spots in the middle of things. And and Congress just, just said this just is not going to fly. It's not going to work. So um, with the change in administration, uh, it, it was essentially official. And uh, as Sawyer alluded to, um, the arm has been amputated. A lot of the technology that was put together for arm uh, is going to be dispersed into the agency and still being worked on for instance the, the big one being the solar electric propulsion systems that's not going anywhere that is still going to be tested that's still going to be utilized and that still wants to wants to fly at some point uh, but um, as far as any of the other some of the other technologies mm, not so sure you know i'd be interested because i know one thing that um, especially in, in, in Sawyer, Mark, and, and Gene, all of you might remember this, that when we were down for um, Orion's test flight, that one of the things that um, they were talking about was that the asteroid redirect mission was going to be a good mission for testing some of SLS and testing other things and sort of like as, a, as milestones for a test. So it would be interesting to see where those, those sort of tests will come from now. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, my thought in all honesty is if you want to go ahead and test these systems, like if you want to test sol solar electric propulsion, fine, but there, there's no need to put, you know, a, a boulder around in orbit around the moon and give Orion a target to. To a lot of people up on the hill, it would just seem to be a make work project for Orion. And that's, I think, why it really didn't get a lot of uh, a lot of support out there. And I don't think anybody made the connection between putting a, a boulder in orbit around the moon 
and getting to Mars. Uh, and that was the uh, the foil on that, unfor- you know, unfortunately, but that that's the way a lot of people saw it. Yeah, admittedly, when I thought of Arm, I think of taking what looks like a giant trash bag, grabbing an asteroid, and bringing it back into orbit, which I'm pretty sure is what most of the public saw, and what most of, in particular, in this case, the politicians saw, which makes it a little more difficult to sell it as a proving ground and as, you know, a destination at all for SLS. So I I think that's part of it, to be honest, is it wasn't portrayed in the greatest of lights. Yeah, the other thing too, Sawyer, is we have Osiris Rex going to Bennu right now, and it will go ahead and bring back a sample of this asteroid. And in a lot of people's eyes too, the asteroid redirect mission wasn't really worth the risk of an astronaut's life to do because you're already doing that kind of sort of robotically with another with another mission. And I think, too, that, that kind of took a lot of luster off of uh, off of the asteroid redirect. Yeah, that probably is part of it, too. I'm excited to see what comes back from OSIRIS-REx, and maybe that'll change people's minds once we get samples of it. But to be honest, that's still too far in the future to see this as something happening anytime soon. So what does that mean? Long live Mars, then? Yeah, I mean... Uh, to to go into I guess the next story if you will NASA released its mid year report I guess it was uh, oh uh, last week last week sometime and there was a video out there on the uh, this week in NASA um, segment about for about five minutes and there was a couple things missing from there that I thought were kind of interesting yes. Uh, NASA did tout its uh, progress with both the Space Launch System and the Orion uh, uh, crew capsule, and and that's good news. Uh, But there wasn't a lot in there as far as the journey to Mars. And, Kat, I think you you kind of said the same thing while we were talking pre-show. They haven't been using that a lot lately. And I'm wondering, is Mars losing its luster, if you will, as a target? And are we looking, you know, pulling it back to maybe, like, maybe, oh, I don't know, um, a quarter of a million miles to, like, say, the moon and returning there first? To be honest, I'm not quite sure if it's so much of a Mars losing its lackluster or losing its appeal as it is in the people who were advising the president on his budget to include things like NASA's budget and the people who are advising him on NASA are very huge fans of private space endeavors. And the message may be that is Mars a better private destination and perhaps not the best use of NASA resources. Um, And that's just conjecture on my own part. Like I don't have any inside sources. That's just from looking at it. What I would, what I would assume or like you point out, you know, the international stage is definitely moving towards some sort of international collaborative effort on the moon. And so that might be where there's a quiet turn towards the moon. And we know certainly that there are many people within the human spaceflight program in NASA who do think that we need to go back to the moon before we can attempt a human spaceflight to Mars. So I think it could be one or the other of those things, but more probably somewhat of a combination of both of those. Whereas um, 
there is a growing recognition that, that we need the proving ground of the moon before we go to Mars. And also that there's uh, perhaps some outside influences saying like, well, you know, we've got some people with deep pockets who are in the private space industry who are interested in getting people to Mars. Um, so I think it might be a combination of the two. In the the, the lunar village that was proposed uh, by Jan Warner over at ESA has been gaining a lot of, well, it's been gaining a little traction out there. And to be honest, too, I'm we, we've, on this program, uh, have said several times that we think that the, the moon is a pretty good test bed to make sure that your technology is working first before you shoot for Mars in, in any case. So I, I, and even the journey to Mars roadmap indicated that, you know, cislunar space was sort of like the proving ground in any case. So I'm wondering too, if, but, you know, I, again, I, I'm, I'm, it, that, that, that little deal in my head is still saying, are we forgetting, you know, the big, big picture to 2035? And I don't know. Yeah, there, there's a bunch of people out there, Kat, you're absolutely correct, that have been saying, oh, you know, Elon Musk is going to get to Mars before NASA anyway, which I don't buy for a nanosecond. But there just seems to be a lot of push for commercial to get there before NASA, you know, before NASA even has a has a chance to blink an eye because NASA is trying to assure mis mission success, whereas I think a lot of, a lot of the commercial folks look at Mars is a technical challenge, and they're not really looking big picture. So there, there's a lot of you know dreamers out there, and and you know heck, I used to, I'm I still include myself as one of them, but I'm also a bit of a realist too, and I know there are certain things we need to make sure that we kind of x off and check all the boxes before we go ahead and shoot for Mars. A lot of people call that uh, being chicken and saying that, you know, people in the covered wagons, they didn't do the checkbox thing. They just went for it. Well, I said, yeah, and those who didn't do the checkbox thing didn't get to the other side, did they? You know, it, it's just something to, to think about. The other thing that concerned me a little bit is, is there was no mention in there about another planet that I found a little alarming. Um and that was Earth. There wasn't really a, a big Earth science uh, presence in, in that video. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, okay, you know, that opens up another can of worms about uh, the, the current administration and its, its thoughts toward Earth science. And, and I think, in essence, I think that they're being pennywise and pound foolish, but that, that, that's another story for another day. But uh, NASA has made some pretty significant discoveries about our home, um, you know, from clouds and ice, radiation surrounding the wor our, our world and so on, as uh, Eric Berger observed. But uh, um, for some reason or other, th those were kind of missing from the video, and I'm, I'm also curious as to why. It would be great to see more of the Earth. Thankfully, there's still satellites up there. There are still people studying it, no matter what that budget says. We still have our home planet to take care of, and we will still be doing everything we can, I would hope, to keep it as best as we can. And if not, finding a way to get the heck out of here. So, <laughs> My big concern with sort of the lack of the Earth science highlight or perhaps budget for NASA is that there was some talk um, six or seven months ago that, that uh, the current administration wanted to shift a lot of 
sort of Earth observing to Noah from NASA, which is fine sort of when you think about it in theory because Noah and NASA work together a lot on this, but Noah doesn't have the capacity that NASA has to carry out these missions. And so that to me has always been sort of a concern, you know, in is there going to be some interagency shift? And if so, who is going to be able to build capacity at NOAA if that capacity is lost at NASA? And, and that just seems perhaps even like a waste of money to, you know, why build a new capacity when the capacity already exists and has been doing quite well? So that that's my big concern with sort of where Earth science is going. Um, I mean, obviously I have other concerns as well, but... The, the one that I think that is an addressable and talk aboutable or discussable <laughs> <laughs> concern in, in on the context where we would talk about here would be what does it mean if we shift some of these priorities and what are the real life implications, policy implications of shifting some of that? Uh, Kat, uh, is this, I, I'm actually with you on this one. Um, the uh, it, it just seems silly in my eyes to go ahead and start you know, playing chess with some of the inner workings. I mean, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it in plain English. And and not just a lot of people within the United States, but the, a lot of people throughout the world really depend on this data that uh, that NASA collects to, in order to make decisions. And we're not just talking about, you know, climate decisions. We're, we're actually talking about, you know, where should I plant that kind of decision? And that, that's that's how 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 intrinsically important these things are, and well, it, it just seems to me kind of silly to go ahead and shift the uh, the, the the pawns around in, in mid game. Yeah. So again, with these reports, it's just as interesting to see what's in there as what is not in there. And this, I think, is the case. There's, you know, of course, we mentioned arm being gone, but the lack of Mars, the lack of uh, Earth. There's a lot that's still yet to be determined of what NASA's future is. And to be honest, I think that's kind of what we've been talking about on this show since the end of Shuttle, if not slightly before the end of Shuttle, of, you know, NASA still really needs a good, clear direction on where they're going to take SLS. So ARM is out of it. Uh, haven't really talked much about Mars and uh, haven't really talked much about the moon other than the test flight. And they're even not really talking much about what we're going to do with Earth. So... I think there just needs to be, with this administration change and with budgets changing and everything, just a clearer direction. Exactly, Sawyer. Give it, give give NASA a goal; they'll they'll reach it. But you got to go ahead and give the marching orders, and that's what I think NASA is waiting for. And the beauty of of SLS, the beauty of Orion, is that they are both flexible vehicles. They are designed. If you want to go for the moon, fine, we can do that. If you want to go for Mars, yeah, these two vehicles can be a part of that kind of infrastructure. So uh, I think, you know, I'll, I'll give uh, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier kudos to, to trying to make sure that these, these two vehicles remain flexible. Exactly, and this is something we've been keeping an eye on for all these years, and we certainly will continue to keep an eye on. So we're going to wrap things up with something that's a little bit more under Mark's wheel well. Well, airplane wheel wells, SST airplane wheel wells. Mark, have you heard about this new quieter supersonic transport plane that NASA's working on? Yes, I have. And every once in a while, you see a uh, a link to some futuristic-looking airplanes, and this is certainly one of them. 
And the significance of this press release is not in anything that we're going to go out and see at a, as a test flight, but it's the preliminary design review of this quiet SST. And they had a contract that was uh, given uh, 2016 to Lockheed Martin to come up with a design capable of fulfilling this low boom flight demonstration experimental aircraft. It'll be an X-plane um, in the parlance of, of test flight aircraft. This uh, pre preliminary design review allows NASA to move forward later this year with uh, soliciting some proposals and hopefully awarding a contract early next year to build a piloted single-engine X-plane. What they're going to be doing with this is some test flights eventually where they will be flying over populated areas and they'll be looking for community response as to what they think about the sonic boom. And the sonic boom that they anticipate this test aircraft having is more like a heartbeat than the, uh, the classic boom that genuinely did uh, turn U.S. policy away from the SST overland. The SST aircraft that we're familiar with is, of course, the Concorde and a uh, Russian aircraft, the Tupolev Tu-144. Uh, those flew for a varying number of years. The, the Russian aircraft flew for 55 flights from start to finish of its program. And the Concorde, of course, it flew for over 27 years. But, um, you know, this is something that we may see in our skies someday. And I think it's good news that the uh, first day in NASA aeronautics includes uh, something like this going forward. Oh, yeah, I love this. The uh, Quest, the quiet SST. Again, slight little exaggeration there with the acronyms, but hey, it sounds good at least. I love, I love the acronym game. I love when it's just on point and you're like, yes. <laughs> but yes, because that's been the big drawback. If you notice, Concord primarily flew across the Atlantic, New York to Paris, Washington, Paris, London. They were all the transatlantic flights because that whole issue of once it hits supersonic, you've got the sonic booms. And, uh, I mean, people were even worried about that with Concorde for just takeoff noise and then, of course, in flight. But, you know, to get that quieter, to be able to finally have, you know, supersonic transportation as a viable option again. I mean, it's 2017. We had the Concorde for 27 years. We need to get this ability back to fly commercially faster than the speed of sound, in my opinion. I agree. 100% agree. Mark, I, I missed. I missed. Um, I, I don't know the uh, the prime uh, lab on this one. Is is the, it uh, NASA Armstrong or 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 uh, NASA Wallops? Because I know or or Langley. Uh, I'm just wondering. Do they mention that? Actually, I left out uh, one little tidbit. Uh, the testing that was completed was in a supersonic wind tunnel at NASA Glenn Research Center in ah. Cleveland. That, okay, thanks. I, I was I was just curious which uh, which office was was spearheading this one. The tunnel that you're um, referring to, I think I've been inside of it, which is always fun. Just not while it's operating. Yes, yeah. definitely, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> now they also have done work at Langley and in, uh, in Virginia, and I'm sure uh, other facilities were involved in it as well. Yes, and the uh, with the work on this, the SST, or the X-Plane, as it's being called, will begin starting working on actually designing it with a test flight of the X-Plane 
as early as 2021. So a lot going on with this. We'll keep an eye on it in 2021. I want to be on board. Makes two of us. Actually, I think that makes the entire panel here. And I'm sure most of our listener base, too. Yeah, exactly. Well, if they need test pilots or test passengers for the first flight, I think we've got about 20,000 people ready to volunteer. Oh, yeah. You know, just sit, just sit me in front of one of the instruments. I'll, I'll, I'll just make sure things are... And show me what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> well, on that note, though, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Oh, Sawyer, thank you. And just a shout out to a friend of the show, Miles O'Brien. He's doing a uh, a little bit of a bike, bike tour uh, through uh, Michigan, and this is to uh, to support a, a a cancer charity doing research and helping cancer patients and so on. Uh, this is being done in memory of his uh, his sister that he uh, he lost some uh, some time ago. So again, hats off to you, Miles. Thanks for doing this. Indeed, he'll be biking 300 miles for this charity, and you can go online and you can help donate to Team Eileen. This is part of the Less Cancer campaign at lesscancer.org. Their goal is $10,000, and they're almost there, so anything you can do to help them out. He's a great person, great friend of the show, and great cause. Thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Raderman. Pleasure to be here, and I'm going to mention a link that I hope our listeners will look into with the upcoming Eclipse August 21st. Go to the website eclipse2017.nasa.gov safety, and I'll be talking more about the safety aspects of the upcoming Eclipse, and I hope that uh, listeners will take a look at this. You only got two eyes. Take care of them. Yes, we were debating about the uh, 14 welders masks versus 13 welders masks here earlier. Number so. 14 welders glass, definitely. We, one, yeah, that's another long story. <laughs> and I'll save it for the from when we cover the eclipse. Which we certainly will. And we hope you'll stick with us through that and for all of our upcoming episodes. And until that next episode, thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. 